The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hello, Brian Goldsmith. Hi, Katie Couric. Well, I know you are very, very excited about our oh guest today. Oh, my God. Today. I can't I even mean, contain myself. Seriously. Uh, we're going to be talking to Stan Greenberg. Why don't you give a quick bio of Stan for our listeners, Brian? Well, he's definitely in the, the Polster Hall of Fame, which is visited slightly less frequently than the Baseball Hall of Fame. I was going to uh, say, woo! That sounds like a fun Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for some of us, he was, uh, he was the top pollster for – President Bill Clinton in 1992, Al Gore in 2000, Tony Blair in the UK, Nelson Mandela, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. He's really had an amazing career both as an academic and as a political strategist. And he has spent a lot of time recently talking to one-time Democrats and Obama supporters who switched to backing Donald Trump. Would you say he's a wise man who says... Only fools oh, rush in, but Brian can't help this falling is in love lame with This joke Stan. about how I'm in love with Stan. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm getting a little <laughs> jealous. Actually, I think he's a fascinating guy, and it was fun to talk to him about everything, what happened in the 2016 election, and most importantly, how people are feeling about Donald Trump these days, specifically people in Macomb County in Michigan. He really has his finger on the pulse of people who are white, working-class voters and how they're feeling about Donald Trump today. We're also going to hear from a voter in Chicago, a lifelong Democrat who supported Obama, who switched to Donald Trump last year, find out what she thinks about how he's doing in office. And uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, here's Stan Greenberg. Stan Greenberg, it is such a thrill to have you on our podcast. And I have to tell you, my friend Brian Goldsmith is completely geeking out right now. Why, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> because if you care about politics and polling, you know, Stan is a, a bit of an icon in those worlds. He's probably the most important progressive pollster ever. And he has some really interesting stuff to say about 
the voters who supported Donald Trump. So I'm really excited about this conversation. But Stan, before well, bef- I'm geeked out too, though. <laughs> you are good. <laughs> I'm good. on with you. I'm on with you. The <laughs> okay. two of you. Well, but before we talk about this latest uh, focus group that you did in Macomb County, I just wanted to ask you quickly. Stan, you have a very mm-hmm. impressive CV, I must say, for somebody who is in this line of work. Um, can you just tell us briefly kind of how you got here? Well, it certainly wasn't part of any plan. <clears throat> and I always thought, you know, I was going to be a professor. I got my PhD. I began teaching very early at, you know, at Yale. You know, I was very active politically, but my academic life was was separate, um, you know, from my, you know, political, you know, work. So I began studying what was happening in poor neighborhoods and working people, you know, at, at, an, at an early at an early point. And, and you really broke through in politics with a study you did in 1985 of the so-called Reagan Democrats. I mean, some people have given you credit for inventing that term, but these were people who historically had voted for Jack Kennedy, for Lyndon Johnson, even for Jimmy Carter, and they broke for Ronald Reagan, and you were sent there to investigate why and how that happened. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about what you learned then? In 1985, I was, while I was still teaching at Yale, um, I was asked um, by the UAW and the Michigan Democratic Party to try to understand the Reagan Democrats, starting in Macomb County. And so Macomb County was a the, one of the most democratic, um, unionized, Catholic counties that had voted overwhelmingly for John Kennedy, um, but cast a very big vote for Ronald Reagan in 1984 and really shattered um, for the North a lot of illusions um, about you know, where the parties stand and, 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 and how they'll be shaped in the future. And Stan, in a way, was this election like deja vu all over again? Yeah, duh. <laughs> the, uh, um, Thanks, Dan. <laughs> I, mean, I wrote. I mean, I wrote. Captain a, Obvious I, here. <laughs> look, uh, I wrote a piece after you know uh, you know Obama's election, in which I basically said goodbye Macomb County, you know, because we have this first African American president who carried Macomb County. Right. And so, if if that was true, let's, it's obviously time to move on. Particularly if you look at Oakland County, which was the affluent suburb next door. Right. I um, mean, which there was an even much bigger majority for for Democrats. And so the signal was, we've done a lot to win, you know, to win these kinds of voters. But you know, but if you look at what's happening in the most affluent and best educated parts of the country, Democrats are building up bigger and bigger majorities. They're also becoming more diverse, you know, more you know, immigrant and ethnic as well. Um, and the future lies there. Well, Macomb had a, you know, made its point uh, now because the the margin in Macomb in 2016 was by far bigger than the statewide margin uh, that uh, Trump won um, and part of him winning. And this says something really interesting about our politics more broadly because you have working class Macomb County, Michigan, which is historically Democratic, and that went for Trump by almost 12 points. And then, as you mentioned, next door you've got more upscale, business-oriented Oakland County, which is historically Republican. Right. And that went for Hillary by eight. And so you've had almost this flip in our politics where the the kind of the auto executives are now voting Democratic and the former line workers are voting Republican. Yeah, which is why I decided to go back to Macomb and, also, and to listen to these voters. I, the, uh, I decided uh, we can organize four uh, you know, groups with all Trump voters, all work, you know, working class white Trump voters um, in, a, in an environment <clears throat> where they would be comfortable speaking about their lives you know, and their values and, uh, and, you know, and try to 
make sure they get hurt again. I know it's very clear that they have not second guessed that vote. They have very strong you know reasons on you know why they ca- you know cast that vote for Donald Trump, you know, but they feel under assault. They trust him, you know, but they feel you know they feel the country. Um, is so polarized that the uh, opponents have not accepted the election result. Yeah. Um, give them a chance is, is almost the first thing, you know, out of out of their mouth. And they, they still think we're in a period where he's trying to govern, and they feel like they're under assault in their own families, in their own communities, their own kids. Well, let's drill down a little, Stan, on how you conducted these focus groups. You conducted four in all. Is that right? Um, I did. I did. And the a focus group that worked is homogeneous. It's comfortable. And, you know, and people feel, you know, revealing dynamics that they would not otherwise do. It's actually, you know, what, you know how I started initially when I did the Macomb focus group because I would have only union people, only men, you know, working class, uh, you know, or non-union and, and them feeling free to, to talk about it. And at that point, that was really – that was, you know, Republicans had been doing focus groups, but this was kind of new. Um, and so I was kind of inventing that methodology, you know, at that time. But I, but I almost had to like go back and say start over. You know, the, you know, I listened to the focus groups that other people were doing, and they're testing different attacks on Trump. You know what? These voters really do want to be heard, and they do have reasons why they voted the way they did. And so I thought it was really important to listen to them, not fight them. You know, let them, you know, express their views on why. Um, and then we can get to the question of, you know, how you can begin to win them back. And I'm so curious to hear your views on the differences and similarities between these Macomb County voters 30 years ago and today. Because 30 years ago, you wrote at length about how they believed Democrats were serving special interests. Um, there was a heavy racial component to mm-hmm. the way that they had felt alienated from the National Democratic Party. They felt like it was out of step with their cultural values, that welfare money was going to other people, not them. Were these some of the same motivations behind their support for Trump and their their feelings of alienation from the establishment, or was there something different happening now? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean something very different. First of all, what not what's not different is their hostility to the establishment, hostility to people in power, both corporate power and political power. They're very much focused on political leaders who have sold them out, you know, for special interests, cut bad trade deals for America while their jobs, you know, were lost. And so there's a commonality to the kind of political economic argument that no one is recognizing it and, you know, and fighting that. But in 1985, race was just so central. Detroit was central. Um, the black politicians, you know, that they, you know, talked about who were dominant in uh, in politics in Michigan. They would talk about how, you know, how they used their power over both Michigan government and America, uh, the U.S. government, to, you know, to make government work for them. Affirmative action was, you know, aimed at, you know, at them. They paid a real price, um, they believed. Um, for, you know, government, um, you know, policy. And so race was absolutely central. So if race was central then, what is central now, Stan? Immigration and Islam. Immigration, as you recall, was the number one issue that, you know, the first issue that Trump uh, ran on. Right. Now, he was focused on Mexicans, and uh, but he was focused on un- undocumented immigrants, you know, not ha- having control of your borders, citizens not having preference over non-citizens. What he was doing, what Trump was doing, and saying this was his central issue, and he was the only one willing to speak about it, both in the primary and in the general. So I think part of what you're saying is politics in Macomb County is still about us versus them. The them is just no longer African-Americans. It's, yes. it's mm-hmm. Muslims. It's immigrants who are 
documented or undocumented. Yes. And the Democrats need to come up with a message on immigration that resonates with working class people who feel like they've lost out. And I want to just interject because I read in- an interesting column, Stan, and I think, Brian, you and I discussed it, that was in the New York Times that said the mistake for Democrats and liberal Democrats is to say all immigration is good. Remember, Brian, we talked about that column and that it's mm-hmm. much more complex. And for them not to say we have to tackle this issue one way or another, they do that at their peril. Do you agree with that, Stan? Yes, I agree. I agree that uh, Democrats have a, have to have a perspective on immigration because we, in fact, are advocates of immigration. People are very comfortable with a system of comprehensive reform that ha- that's managed and has controls and demands responsibility. The people get you know, in the queue, they learn English. That in that context, they are you know willing to support immigration. That increases immigration. Democrats are going to be for immigration. We think it's a better country. We believe in a multicultural country. We believe in finding unity out of diversity. But as you said, uh, Stan, yeah. not completely mm-hmm. unfettered with some kind of structure, some kind of responsibility, some kind of system in place. Yes, and they, I mean, they, people are very open to reform that increases immigration, but in a context where there are rules and where, and where legal immigrants have, you know, precedence over, you know, illegal citizens over non-citizens. Um, and that's a normal thing to want and expect in any society. But this gets to a bigger issue about the difference between perception and reality, because the reality is that immigration and trade, two of the real bugaboos for the voters you studied, have been positives for this country if you look at all of the data on income and jobs. But they're perceived as very negative by a lot Mm -hmm. of voters who are critical in presidential elections. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about the report you wrote is that, you know, these voters, you said, accept Trump's version of the news and the facts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on the one hand, you've got real news and real facts. You have fake news and fake facts. And it seems like uh, the latter are winning out. Well, look, there is a a reality um, that these voters – that America is dealing with. I mean, we have, you know, an increasingly, you know, foreign population. 37% of New York City is farm born. I think, you know, it's about 35% of California's, you know, is foreign is foreign born. And all those numbers are growing. There's a huge growth in uh, migration globally. One in five of migrants globally are in the United States. There is a big growth of foreign population and it's changed. Asian population has grown dramatically as well, obviously, as well as Hispanic. And there is a, you know, it's part of what America is. And if we are actually going to get the most out of it and be economically competitive, we also have to manage it. And by the way, when we presented to this focus group, a Coca-Cola ad, you know, in which they had America the Beautiful sung, you know, in multiple languages, because we use that as a, you know, a test. About half kind of accepted it with, you know, that, you know, the, and we're comfortable with it. You know, some saying that's the way it should be. We're going to be unified. We're, you know, the, and right. so, I, you know, so that, now look, there's some that aren't going to be, but there's a, you know, a significant number that 
you know, know they're living in America, that is a you know minority majority. I I nation. know that yeah, I know that ad you're referring to, and it's sort of a celebration of pluralism. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is some of the folks you were talking to celebrated it, but plenty yes. of them didn't and felt Correct. that this pluralism, quote unquote, is threatening to the country and to its values. Let's remember, though, countrywide, you know, by two to one, people believe immigrants are helpful to the country, not that they create a heavy burden on jobs and public services. And by the way, you need to cut across race on this because it's, you know, a lot of African-American groups that I do, there's, you know, there's concern about, you know, immigration as well. Don't assume it's only white working class voters, you know, who are focused on this. This has been such a tumultuous period, it seems to me. If you listen to the news, radio, television, you read your information online. But most accounts indicate that Donald Trump has had a very tough few weeks. Russia wiretapping his tweets, healthcare reform, alienating allies, striking deals with companies, turmoil in the White House, uh, you know, a lot of infighting, leaks, unprecedented leaks happening. But these voters, um, it doesn't seem to be affecting them because there's no buyer's remorse, is there? Mm-hmm. But look, let's let's accept that it's two months into this, even as tumultuous, as crazy as this period is. You know, it's still two months. And they – look, they think there's a civil war in the country. They think the people that are protesting, you know, in the streets, you know, are just – have not accepted the election. And so they still think that they are trying to stop him from governing successfully. And they're not convinced the Republicans in Congress are really for him either. They feel in casting their vote for Trump, they were voting for a huge change. It was a major slap in the face at the establishment of both parties – and they're looking for big, big, big change. They could be disillusioned, you know, but not now. Certainly when I did these groups, you know, a few weeks ago, this, you know, this is still playing out in their minds. And my guess is when we go out and listen to voters again in the next couple of weeks, that'll still be true, you know, that they are defending, the, you know, their vote for Trump. So I think this will erode it in time, but not now. And this goes to an interesting question, Stan, about how they're going to judge President Trump moving forward. That is, does he actually need to deliver for them personally in order to be perceived as successful Mm -hmm. by them? You know, I actually do think he needs to deliver. I mean, I I don't think they were faked into voting for Trump. They think he's a strong leader. They think he'll go after the establishment. But I've, you know, but there's some evidence here that if, in fact, the health care law, you know, ends up making, I mean, they're, I mean, they're counting health their premiums, their deductibles to the penny. I mean, they go around the room. I mean, they know what their health care costs, what their insurance costs. They, I mean, they're, they're not going to be fooled by a you know, health care plan, you know, that raises their deductibles. You know, they think he's going to make health care, their insurance, both better and cheaper and more affordable. And, and so, If that doesn't happen, Stan, I thought it was interesting that your report said they would blame Congress, not Donald Trump. Well, they blame Congress if, if nothing happens. I think if, you know, the, you know, I think they're, yes, I think there's reason to think that they will blame Congress because they, you know, they, we put pictures of Ryan and McConnell there for them to look at and they're really quite hostile to them and they know they, you know, that the establishment didn't support him. And so I think they have a ready interpretation for stuff not getting done. But I don't think that's the same thing as if they actually pass this Ryan bill in the House. Once you've passed that and he's fought for it, 
I think make I think he owns the specifics of it in very different ways. Obviously, if it were to be enacted, if in fact the healthcare replacement is what Donald Trump has supported, and ultimately it hurts those voters rather than helps them, do you think they'll have a change of heart about him specifically? Yes, I do. And and, and keep in mind, these are if you look at the voters who came out for you know Trump, they are. About half of them are, you know, were had voted for Obama, but about half of them hadn't voted in the in the twelve presidential election. So he brought out people that were new voters, not new registrants, but you know, but a lot of new voters, you know, that he really got their attention, you know, particularly in the Rust Belt, where he promised them change on, tr- you know, trade and immigration and other things, and 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 repealing and replacing the uh, the Affordable Care Act. I think that the. the you know, they're more likely to not vote than, and certainly in the off year, you know, it's going to be, I think, challenging for Republicans to get these voters to come vote to support the Republican members of Congress, you know, to make sure they can stay there, you know, doing Trump's agenda because they don't think they're with him on his agenda. They don't like them. They don't, they view them as part of the establishment who fought, you know, fought him. So, so I think the first effect, you know, is to pull back from the Republicans uh, in Congress, which hurts in the midterms. The second effect is just to disengage, you know, because they were, you know, when they began to see the negatives that we were testing, you could, you know, I felt almost, I felt badly having presented them because some of them got really angry saying that means there's not going to be any change. You know, if this is true, there's not going to be any change. And they want change. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're actually going to hear from a voter in Chicago who was a staunch Democrat her entire life and jumped ship for this election and is very passionate about Donald Trump. And Stan, we'll get your reaction to her feelings. That's right after this. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. We're back with pollster extraordinaire, Stan Greenberg. Do you thank like you, that title? You. Is that what your card I'll says, Stan? I'll change, I'll change my website. <laughs> well, let's talk to someone who supported Donald Trump in the election. Her name is Janet Salisbury. She's from Chicago. She is white. She's a single mom. And she's not the classic rural white working class voter, but she has a lot to say about why she switched from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Janet, are you on the line? 
I'm here. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on our podcast. Tell us about why you decided to vote for Donald Trump and why you still support him. Um, you know, it was I've been a lifelong Democrat, grew up in an Irish Democratic Catholic family. Um, so it was a very, very difficult decision. But it was actually summer of 2015 when I was at a reunion with my college friends and it was right when Trump had come down the escalator and everybody was just kind of like making a joke about it. And it's sort of just to think, you know, and um, the more and more people like ruled him out, I started listening a little bit more to him and then saw the whole Bernie Sanders, Hillary thing go on. And I'm probably in the category of what women call exasperated. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was exasperation. I felt nobody's listening to me. Nobody's, trying to reach out to me and my concerns. Um, and so I just, it was a shakeup vote. It was, let's shake it up because what we're doing isn't working. And one of the things you were most concerned about was your health care. Oh, absolutely. Um, I work for a very small uh, family health company. Um, so we don't, you know, our health plans change year to year. And I'm lucky that I do have some employee contribution to my health care, but I still pay a fair amount. Um, and I have a lot of, uh, I have a couple of friends who are like in business, other women and the business for themselves. And just the way the, their costs have been skyrocketing the last three years. Um, and nobody was willing to admit that Obamacare or the eight, you know, Affordable Health Care Act isn't working and it needs to be fixed. You know, and, and then the one day when Bill Clinton stood up and I saw it on the news and he said, it's not working. The deductibles are skyrocketing. The premiums are skyrocketing. I thought, finally, finally, someone's, you know, hearing what's going on. So. Hey, Janet, I'm I'm Brian, Katie's co-host. And I was just curious, how do you think about the way the media is covering President Trump right now? Um, you know, I have a hard time. I'm kind of a, a news junkie. Um so I used to watch a lot of it. I'm just having a hard time even watching it because I just think it's so unfair. Um, but, you know, I, I, they're just like running after the, the late, latest Twitter or the latest thing. And just I just want to say chill, just step back. And um, I think it's just making it even more divisive than ever. So I'm very frustrated with that. Stan, is that how a lot of your uh, the folks you talked to in Macomb County felt? God, and you know, indeed, I mean, the same. I think the same level of kind of frustration with the with mainstream news, and and it's not like they're going to other news. It's more of a you know, turn it off, come on. But they, I think, it's, I think it's exactly captures exactly right, which is people have not settled the election. There's a civil war going out there. You know, give them a chance. What chill. do you, do you <laughs> chill? Do you have anything you'd like to ask, Janet Stan? Well, uh, what I'm actually focused on is, you know, if you're watching what's happening now on healthcare, you know, given how important healthcare was, you know, to uh, your vote and the, and the costs and high deductibles, which is exactly what people are, you know, struggling with. And I, the, yeah, I absolutely am watching that, um, but I am turning it off a lot of other times when I hear Russia, I turn it off because um, that's just to me, that's a distraction. That's just throwing a firecracker up in the air and making everybody look over there. But I am watching the health care. I am concerned about what I've heard so far about, I mean, I'm 58 years old and I'm, you know, like the how people in my age group are, may come out on the short end of the stick, but I haven't seen a lot of specifics and maybe I haven't searched them out. Um, 
Yeah, I am concerned, and that's, I am definitely watching that with a very close eye. And if you don't like a health care plan that Donald Trump is supporting, do you think that will be something, Janet, that will change your mind, or will you stick with him on other issues? Um, I'm kind of a wait-and-see, give it time. Um, I keep looking at what was the alternative, and I think the alternative would have been gridlock, too. But, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'll just have to see. When, I want to see this fleshed out a little bit more. Janet, can I ask you a question about um, the budget that President Trump put out recently? I'm not sure if you follow the news on this, but a lot of the cut, a lot of the cuts in that budget, you know, affect Trump voters. There are cuts in after-school programs and counter-terror programs and rural development and job training. You know, it's not just the National Endowment for the Arts and foreign aid and and traditional areas that um, Republicans go after. And so I was curious whether that budget seemed like a series of good ideas to you, or did it cause you to question at all your support for the president? Um, I Frankly, I haven't heard a lot about it. I mean, unfortunately, I think, you know, again, this is where I kind of like get like and the media, because I'm, all I'm hearing is, you know, Sesame Street's out and um, different things like that. I have a 19-year-old son, so Sesame Street being out really doesn't like play highly into my um, vernacular, but then I hear things about like meals on wheels. And I know so many people, I mean, my mom, you know, God rest her soul, but when she was alive, she used to help deliver wheels on meals or meals on wheels. And I know that that's like, like more than just providing food to people. It's also, you know, giving them a lifeline of support. So those types of things concern me. I mean, I'm not like a conservative Republican. I've always been a more of a moderate Democrat, um, so I, I think there needs to be some entitlements, um, but I, those types of things do concern me. I wanted to ask one last question because Brian, Stan, and I, Janet, were talking about this. It seems to me for the past week and a half or so since there was a Twitter storm about President Obama wiretapping Trump Tower, uh, the media has been very, very focused on that allegation. And I'm curious if allegations like those and other things are not proven true or don't have any basis in fact, would that change your opinion of Donald Trump or is it just not significant enough for you? This is not significant to me. I mean, that's just, again, a distraction. Um, I kind of, you know, I kind of operate in the world that (laughs) assume every email could be read, assume everything. So I... um, it's just not a big deal to me. And I think that I just want them to get to work. I voted for Trump as a wake up call. I thought it would be a wake up call for both the Democrats and the Republicans to get their act together. And there's still little children fighting over the sandbox. So, well, I think, Stan, yeah. is Janet pretty representative of the voters with whom you spoke? I think she is. Look, these people, I mean, and I appreciate Janet being so uh, frank about it. They're at the edge economically. They're, you know, they're they're struggling. They're, and they're angry about a uh, politicians and politics that just doesn't listen to them, hasn't listened to them in, you know, in years. And finally, someone has spoken to it. And there are issues that are really central. And healthcare, you know, is you know is one of them. And Janet raised it, and it's, it was a it was a critical piece, and maybe the dominant piece, you know, in terms of what people raised on their own, in terms of you know why they voted the way. And they they are watching. I believe they're watching what's happening there. 
I think they see the other stuff. I mean, they, first of all, they trust him on interpreting, you know, you know, events and facts and what news is right and uh, and and what facts we should trust. Uh, they think so much of this is about denying him the opportunity to bring change um, and not accepting the election result. And so I think it's probably being interpreted in that context, even though I understand that, you know, that you're accusing someone of a, fel- of a felony is an extraordinary thing. But I think for voters, it's what's happening on bringing American jobs, what's being done for my health care, and what are we doing to change this corrupt in a, in a gridlocked system which doesn't work for working people? Well, Janet, does that sound about right to you? That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Well, we so appreciate you talking to us on the phone and giving us your views. I I so appreciate your perspective, and it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. So, Stan, before we leave this topic, I really wanted to talk about your views on what went wrong for Hillary Clinton in 2016, why she lost the election. And I know that you wrote in this memo that you thought that her message was too sort of satisfied with the status quo about building on progress rather than delivering a new economic agenda for swing voters. Can you tell me Mm -hmm. a little bit about what you think she should have done as opposed to what she actually did? Well, I mean, look, there was tactical and strategic malpractice, you know, at every – which uh, I've written about and others have written about, and you just you just want to strangle them <laughs> when you uh, uh, whenever you f- think about the consequences of of the things they got wrong. But at the heart of it, she, I think, maybe overlearned you know the lessons of two thousand, where they think Gore distanced himself from Clinton and cost you know the election in their view. And her. And view. incidentally, you were the senior strategist to that <laughs> campaign. At the end, uh, or the pollster um, to the campaign at the end, uh, the but the they were so determined not to have a, any gap between herself um, and the president. I think that was it was important as a primary strategy in terms of winning the the nomination. But <clears throat> that's what she believed. She thought he was a successful, you know, president. And his, you know, his message to the country is the country is doing well. We're moving in the right direction. You know, build on the progress. Um, and, you know, at critical points, she, you know, mostly identified with that. And that's how she closed the election. And you, you, know, you can't listen to, you know, Janet, you can't listen to voices in Chicago or Macomb County without knowing this country desperately wanted change, didn't want to just build on the progress. They, you know, for most people, median income was below where it was in 2008. You know, they still think about TARP as a corrupt deal in which the you know, political class took care of themselves, you know, and not working people, not the, you know, struggling working people in the country. Um, and, you know, she, in the convention, when she, by the way, when she united with Sanders and, uh, you know, and Warren at the convention and her convention speech in the debates, she actually, she adopted a bold economic change agenda. Um, that won her very strong support. That was her strong. Those were the points in which she was viewed most strongly and had her biggest lead. Um, but you know, after the debates, she never mentioned the economy again. She never talked about what she was going to do with the country. She never talked about change. Um, it was more about how Trump was unfit to be president. Unfit, uh, not not the right temperament, not the right experience. The fact that he was offending different groups. They purposely did not attack him or disqualify him 
um, on screwing small businesses and workers, using Chinese steel, um, using, you know, undocumented workers, all of the kind of attacks that would undermine him as being a job creator and on the economy. They purposely did not do those. I saw some of those ads, though, Stan, that said Donald Trump, you know, fixed his golf course up or his golf club, whatever it's called, and and never paid the employees that did it. I saw a lot of ads about that. Um, not it was it wasn't how either their campaign or the or the outside super PACs clo- uh, closed. All their ads were about um, you know temperament, the way he treated other people, his language, the way he treated women. That was the whole close. Maybe that and was early look, in the and campaign. And also, if you look at also the the president's close in the final two weekends, which was incomes are up, poverty is down. We've created you know millions of jobs. Build on the progress. She'll finish the job. It seems to me, though, she was a bit between a rock and a hard place because people wanted change, but she had to associate herself with Barack Obama, hoping that the same people who voted for him would come out and vote for her. So she couldn't really distance herself from him. And yet, as you said, the overwhelming mm-hmm. sentiment among many voters was throw the bums out. Let's start over. I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of how, uh, how conflicted she was, but she she created a campaign that had all of Obama's consultants um, and, and which was which was self-conscious was to be as close as possible uh, to Obama. He had a very high, you know, job approval at the end uh, and what you, you know, would have thought would, you know, would translate, you know, into, you know, strong vote. I'm sure she expected to win. Everyone else expected her to win in part because of the state of the economy, overall approval. But, you know, underneath the not just underneath, you know, had a huge majority saying the country needed, you know, big change. And these voters who went for Trump wanted big change. And a lot of voters pulled away from her at the end in the last week. I mean, if you look at the data in the exit polls and our own polls, it was in the last week that a lot of these working class voters pulled back from her uh, and moved to, to Trump when she did not offer anything on the economy at the end. It was very poly- it was difficult, obviously, you know, given where, you know, the issues you raise. Um, but it was very winnable. And the country needed that. She needed that kind of mandate. And what do you say to Democrats who just blame James Comey for the result? Not very helpful. I mean, look, I mean, I'm, look there's no doubt that she would, would be president, but for Comey and what the FBI uh, did in those uh, weeks. There's no doubt at all that but for Comey, she would be president today. Yes. I believe that. But that doesn't, but that, but, but campaigns, campaigns face you know, you know, October surprises face huge you know, uh, issues. A, a focused campaign has a direction, has a mission, is giving, is telling people where they want to take the country, is telling the, is making a choice uh, between the candidates that is compelling, that gets you to be able to win in the key states at the end. Um, they weren't giving that kind of central direction and mission and vision that allowed people to look past the other pieces, the hacking and the combing. And so while it's true that they had an enormous impact, and I think decisive impact, that doesn't mean you lose. You still have a, you still need to give people a reason to vote for you and a choice, uh, which they didn't do ultimately. So Stan, let's close our conversation by talking about the future and what Democrats should do now. And this kind of takes me back to Macomb County. 
are white working class Midwesterners really the future of the party or should Democrats, as some have argued, turn to the Sun Belt? Because, I mean, they point to stuff like, you know, Hillary only lost Arizona by three and a half and she lost Ohio by eight percent. You know, I've written a book about the called America Ascendant, you know, that talks about these trends and you, these trends are accelerating. You know, everything we're talking about is is accelerating. That is the concentration of the GDP, you know, in the metro in the metro areas, you know, the the growing farm population. All of these trends are accelerating, growing diversity, multiculturalism uh, in this, you know, in the cities. All these things are the future. There's no doubt. Millennials are increasing, you know, you know, part of the population and any, you know, democratic strategy has to embrace, you know, that uh, majority. But there's two pieces to that. Those voters themselves are also struggling economically. We're not, if you look at millennials and, the, and, and being weighed down, you know, by debt, if you look at the, you know, parts of our base, the working class parts of our base, including unmarried women, single women who are a quarter of the electorate, you know, they are struggling economically. And they're looking for Democrats to have an economic message and, and to be doing, uh, addressing issues that you know, matter to them. So I, don't, I think it's a false choice. There was, I embrace the, the new America, and that's where, you know, that's where we're going to you know, you know, build our majority. But we don't, get the, the, we don't maximize our support even there unless we understand what's happening to working people, you know, black, white, you know, brown. You know, this is a, you know, a broad problem you know, that still you know, that runs through this country. And they are they do feel forgotten. And so part of Democrats winning is also being seen to recognize that working people, you know, are, you know, are, you know, are struggling. And this is a we're 50 states. Now, there are a lot of southern states which we are going to win. But this is a, you know, a constitutional system in which you have lots of states which you like senators and do reapportionment in which rural areas and, 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 and small town areas play a big part in those states. And you can't win in America. You can't govern in America unless you both embrace the new America, um, but also find ways to really represent working Americans who feel unrepresented. Do you think, Stan, the secret sauce for politicians of the future will be understanding this changing, rapidly changing job market, how people can earn a living and how they're going to move from manufacturing to a different kind of economy? Yeah, I do. I don't know if it's a secret. Uh, I don't know if it's a secret sauce, but you're, you're right to raise it. And so Democrats, I think, do have an opportunity now because I don't I, I'm not sure Trump is real. You know, I know he's talking, you know, he'll badger companies into building plants, supposedly, you know, in, in America. But the question is, are there really going to be, you know, uh, mine, coal mines, you know, reopening, you know, under Trump? How much auto employment is going to come in these new factories? A trivial amount, if you look at the projected job, you know, job growth in manufacturing, you know, even with Trump's, you know, scenario. And so the bigger opportunity for progressives is recognize that Trump's not real. He's not real on trade. He hasn't, you know, he didn't do what he said he would do in currency manipulation. Trade barriers are not the answer. Tariffs are not the answer. You know, you know, going forward. So I think I think we're going to find that the Republicans and maybe even Trump are pretty empty in the end when it comes to how you address these issues. And I do think then that it will turn to Democrats. Um, and I think this is a real opportunity. I don't want to have Donald Trump as president for years to get that opportunity. You know, but think about had she won and what a struggle that would have been in office and what the off year and 2020 elections would look like. I actually think you are going to have both in 18 and 20 in particular a chance for Democrats to really be pretty bold and real 
about how you really do have a prosperity that you know raises all you know all ships, you know, not the kind of prosperity that Trump is talking about. And Stan, there's obviously a big debate within the Democratic Party about what the message ought to be going forward. You've had a lot of praise uh, about the Warren Sanders wing of the party. You wrote in your memo that that's the kind of change the voters are hungry for. But Democrats, as you know, are increasingly dependent on college-educated, professional voters uh, in the suburbs and metropolitan areas. And are you concerned that the Democrats are going to move too far to the left and alienate voters that that the party now needs? Well, won't that be interesting? <laughs> Look, I think this is a uh, – the problem you're talking about is, uh, is one that comes from uh, riches of opportunity because you have an increasingly diverse America and, and, and Donald Trump is not going to you know, change, you know, change that. And, and many of those look to a democratic party that's open to you know, multiculturalism um, and a, a kind of economic dynamism which enri- you know, enriches you know, everyone. Um, it also includes the affluent suburbs, which are, have been voting increasingly democratic, not just in this election, but over time. Uh, but also it has to include a lot of working people. A lot of people in our base, you know, are working people. It's not, you know, the what we have to recognize is that a majority of whites are without a four-year degree. They, you know, pulled back under the Obama presidency. And part of the deal has to be, you know, winning those voters. Otherwise, you can't win, you know, across the country uh, and even can't be assured of the kind of electoral college majority, you know, landslide they would like to achieve. But can Democrats win those voters without alienating the uh, more moderate professional voters that they've increasingly come to rely upon? I'm skeptical that that, that is that big a, uh, a trade-off. Bernie Sanders was very strong in the, in the primary, mainly because he made reform his central piece. Uh, that he, you know, he said he was going to clean up politics. If he said it was one policy that he would address, it would be going after money and you know money and politics because that's what corrupts it. That is like a you know, point of entry for everyone in the Democratic coalition. You got to clean up money and politics. You got to reform politics. And so I think there's a reform agenda um, that you know that you know carries uh, you know across. It is true the college-educated voters are are more pro-trade. But when you get to a whole variety of other policies, you know, including education, job training, investment uh, in infrastructure, um, I don't think it's such a, a such a trade-off. I'd be surprised, you know, if those who are running from that wing, you know, of the party, um, you know, aren't able to reach uh, voters across the primary electorate. Well, I think one thing is certain, Stan. These are fascinating times, and I think unsettling times for. Americans all across the political spectrum because the country is so divided and it will be really interesting to see how this all shakes out and what's going to happen in 2020. Maybe you'll come back and do our podcast. I promise. I promise. After the after the landslide, bold reformist win uh, for Democrats who are now going to be under pressure to deliver. 
Stan, thank you so much, Brian. Would you like to whisper sweet nothings to your friend, Stan? Because as I said, God. at one point, you, Brian and Stan, you need to get a room. She gives me so Brian much, is so excited about this. She gives me more abuse for respecting your work over the years. It's really, you know, she's created a hostile work environment, I have to say. <laughs> we have to talk about this on the side. Yeah, yeah, that's a different conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Delighted. As usual, a huge thank you to Gianna Palmer for producing our show and for editing the hell out of this one, by the way. Also to da- Zach Dinerstein. <laughs> oh, not Dak Zinerstein. <laughs> Dak Zach Dinerstein for mixing and engineering and to Ryan Connor for engineering assistance in L.A. and Dave Shaw for his help in Washington, D.C. And thanks, as always, to our social media maven, Allison Bresnik, and to Emily Bina for her part in producing the show. Thanks to our fantastic intern, Nora Ritchie, and Mark Phillips. Thank you for our fantastic theme music. I know that Katie sings it in the shower I love at it. least once a day. I love it. I'm going to buy the CD. Oh, do they still <laughs> make CDs? You can buy it on iTunes okay. or something. <laughs> Katie Couric, Mitch Semmel, and I are the executive producers. And we're not just saying this, folks. We really do love hearing from you. And remember, you can also email us at comments at couricpodcast.com. Be nice. Or you can find me on social media, too. Be nice there as well. I'm Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric on Snapchat. For the four people who are interested, I am at GoldsmithB on Twitter. And best of all, you can rate and review the show on iTunes. We really appreciate your feedback. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, Brian. Bye. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.